Great Patient One Chapter 24 Read by Achan Suchito and Nick Scott Our two pilgrims have set out on the last leg of their pilgrimage, walking through the Himalayan foothills to Kathmandu. They start out by heading for Tansen, the hometown of Venerable Vimalanda, the elderly bhikkhu who had looked after them in Lumbini. The next chapters also cover the sixth lunar cycle, with two more maps, the first of which is available for download with this chapter. Chapter 24 Coming Up for Light Nick Scott The gorge fascinated me. My attention was repeatedly drawn back to it. It was the only break in the steep wall of hills rising in front of us, and it seemed a door to a new land, cool and dark, an escape from the heat of the plains. From it issued the big river we walked beside, and into it disappeared our road, and its trundling lorries. We were still several miles away, but even so the road had been steadily rising slightly as it mounted the fast delta of gravel and rocks that fanned out from the gorge onto the plain. We had clambered down from the bus to walk to Butwal. It seemed only right to traverse those last six kilometres of the Ganges plain on foot. It was now late afternoon, and Butwal was just ahead, perched on a slight rise at the base of the hill to the side of the gorge. An old town of small streets, with a jumble of wood and clay houses. Once Butwal would have been an important staging post on the route to the interior of Nepal. That was when everything was carried in and out by porters. They would have started from Butwal, but these days the lorries bypassed it, thundering into the mountains on the new road. Directions led us to the Vihara, an old two-storey house with outside stairs and a big wooden veranda overlooking a stone-flagged courtyard. This proved to be the residence of three monastics, two nuns dressed in light pink and an old monk who were surprised by our arrival, but very welcoming. They produced tea, found us somewhere to stay, and insisted that we couldn't leave the next morning, as we had intended, as we would have to have our meal there. So we stayed two nights in Butwell. Arjun Suchita spent the next day resting. He still felt depleted, while I climbed the hill behind the town. I wanted to reach the higher forested slopes that I'd seen from the plain, but they were much further up than I'd imagined. After two hours of toiling back and forth on a trail that zigzagged up the steep hill face, I had to settle for the shade of the first decent-sized tree I came to, and a wonderful view out over the plain. My mind, though, was on the mountains ahead. The track I'd been climbing was the old porterage route. Our host had mentioned it, saying that on the following day, once we were through the gorge, we should leave the new road and the valley and climb up to this old trial. It would be quicker that way, 
and we would be in Tanzan within two days. Mountain trails. Perhaps we could abandon our original plan to head east along the base of the mountains. The Porter Trail went all the way to Pokhara, which was amidst real snow-covered mountains. From there, perhaps we could instead cross high mountain passes to Kathmandu. I came down from the hillside full of such thoughts, and keen to leave the next day at first light. Our host reluctantly agreed, providing we took something for breakfast with us. I was now so caught up in the desire to get going, that even this seemed a nuisance. I reasoned that we needed to start early to avoid climbing in the heat, so that we could get to the village of Mason in time for the meal, and also so I could enjoy walking through the gorge in the half-light of dawn. But then there are always reasons. So the next morning I got annoyed at having to wait while a Nepali matron bustled about packing a pile of warm chapatis, then wrapping and carefully stitching cooked vegetables in banana leaves for our breakfast. She would have been up especially early to do that for us. Then I snorted inside at the cup of tea we had to have with our hosts, the kind old monk and his brother who had come by to meet us, plus the pink nuns and a young translator who had been such help. I was fuming when we took the wrong way through town and added five minutes to our journey. By the time we got to the gorge, which I had been so looking forward to, I was in absolutely no state to enjoy it. Instead, I was filled with complaints. The sun is nearly up. It's no longer as dark in the gorge as I'd hoped. It will be hot when we start to climb. Ajahn Shichito should have realised. But the gorge was as spectacular as I'd hoped only just wide enough for the big river that tumbled through it. Its vertical rock walls echoed back the roar of the water. The towering walls dwarfed our road, tucked under an overhang, and reduced the sky to a long slit way above us. It was dark and filled with the cold wind coming down out of the mountains. So then I got annoyed because my annoyance stopped me enjoying it. but on the far side was the light. It flooded into the gorge, and thankfully also into my mind, dispelling the discontent. We emerged to find the sun was up on a new vertical world, of steep forested slopes with patches of cultivated terraces higher up, and dotted with houses. There were even distant mountains just showing in the cleft of the valley ahead. Before us, once we had got our eyes back down to look, was the small village of Doban, squeezed between the river and the steep valley sides. Over a bridge and away from the main road we turned, crossing to a few flat fields on a piece of land created by a slight loop of the river. As we crossed, I was still taking in the shock of the sudden beauty of this world with an extra physical dimension where I was used just to sky. The path skirted the fields, disappeared behind a rock overhang, and then abruptly started to climb a valley so steep that the stream descended it by means of a nearly continuous waterfall. The path became a rocky staircase, 
climbing back and forth across the face of the narrow valley and crossing the stream at breaks in the stream's plummeting descent. All the way up, there was deep shade from the tall trees, rocks damp from the haze of falling water and bunches of light green ferns. The cool walls we climbed beside were covered in dark green liverworts, wet from the misty spray, and amongst them were delicate little orchids, lovers of such cool shady places, just about to come into flower. I needn't have worried about climbing in the heat of the sun. We went on for half an hour before stopping for the breakfast of chapatis, subji and boiled eggs. By then I was confident that we'd reach the next village of Mason by ten and so be able to get our food there. We could take our time. When we started again it was not long before we were coming out onto narrow cultivated ledges and climbing past the occasional house with smiling children waving as we went by. I now know that we were climbing part of the Mahabharat Lek, the ridge of hills that formed the outer ramparts of the Himalayas. The term hills seems a strange one to use for things with steep faces rising up to well over 10,000 feet, which is three times the height of the highest mountain in England. But then everything is relative, and when your country has Mount Everest at 29,000 feet, it seems reasonable to call something Himal only if it is covered in permanent snow and ice, and call the rest Paha, hill, if it is not. The Mahabharat Lek, however, is the highest and steepest of the hill ranges, as it is directly above what geologists call the main frontal thrust, the leading edge of the land that is being crumpled up by the Indian subcontinents pushed north into Asia. We did get to the top of that hill by ten, but not to Mason. Instead, we came out into an empty narrow valley of dry grassland running between two higher hills, at the far end of which was yet another climb to a distant ridge and houses. It was that climb that let us know what we were really in for in the Himalayas. We were already exhausted but we couldn't rest if we were going to get there in time to find food to eat. There was no shade, the path had a surface of grit that our feet slipped back on, and all the way up we had to force ourselves to just keep going. We arrived at the top covered in sweat and dust to find Mason was just half a dozen empty houses. There was one shop, which was hardly that, just a door into a room with a few shelves of jars and a couple of sacks of grain on the floor. There was no one to be seen. We tried walking on, but we could see no other habitation. Then a young man passing confirmed that we had passed through Mason and that there was nowhere we were likely to get cooked food. So I went back to the shop, and after a lot of calling an old lady appeared, who sold me all there was to eat. Four packets of cream crackers, a bag of roasted dal, and some chewing sweets. Then we walked a little way along the path and tried to eat it. When I was in my teens, a friend of mine 
would bet people at parties that they couldn't eat a whole packet of cream crackers without taking a drink. That day, I found out why. We sat under a tree by the path, stoically munching, our mouths gumming up with the crackers and dry roasted dal. We went through two bottles of water trying to swallow them. It was a pretty dire meal. At least our view to the north was spectacular. Beyond the breaking crests of a vast sea of ridges was a distant magical land of high mountains. We couldn't see their snowy peaks, which were nestled in clouds, but we could see that they spanned the whole horizon. Between us and them, the foothills were laid out like a giant maze. Ridge after ridge lay before us in waves, with only the occasional gap in each. Nepal's rivers would once have run due south from the high mountains, but have been diverted by each of these ridges as they rose up, forcing them to run east or to run west, then turn south to break through the ridge in a gorge. That is why, despite the long climb, it had been quicker for us to walk this way than to follow the new road beside the river. The ridges of the middle land of Nepal are older and lower than the Mahabharat Lek, and it's amongst them that the Nepalese civilization developed. From where we sat, we could just make out a collection of houses that must be the top end of Tanzan on the side of a ridge further to the north. We would be there in time for the meal the next day. The descent that afternoon was not as steep as the climb had been. The hillside was crisscrossed with narrow paddy fields all the way down. At the bottom, we rejoined the road, having saved ourselves some twenty kilometres of winding valley. We took it easily after that, not that we were up to doing anything else. We bathed in a stream, and ambled along enjoying the gentle light at the end of the day, to stop at dusk by the river, where I lit a fire and made tea. As we drank it, we agreed that despite feeling very tired, we were glad to be in the mountains. Mountains breed madness. The walk from Budwar required such berserk surges of energy that I could only make it by letting go into a kind of raging delirium, the harsh rasping of breath bellowing in my ears like a war cry, the heat pounding through my head like bloodlust, dissolving vision into brief flashes of coherence through a blur of sweat. My mind could either bite the bullet and thrash the body on, or go under. As there was nowhere to go under, I clenched and bit. At the top of each climb, when we flopped gasping onto the ground, there would come the surge of elation, giddy, manic, overriding the body's complaints. Then the breathing would lapse back to normal, and we could grunt or crack jokes at each other, and then it would be up again, up the next climb, or jolting down a steep incline, knowing that it meant another climb was on its way, and another energy burst, violent as a mountain storm. 
It was like being possessed by bouts of mania and hysteria, a possession that was yet purifying and it left no room for doubt or grumbling. Only in the evening, when the sunset suddenly sucked the warmth out of the air, did I have the time to wonder, dully, how much more of this I could physically handle. I wrapped my blanket around me as we sat with a few words and tea around a fire. It was cold. Tomorrow we would go on, and that's as far as I needed to think. Tomorrow would get us to Tanzen. We'd have a few days there to figure out what direction to take next. Tanzen, a hilltop town. We arrived mid-morning of March 20th up a muscle-searing path and wobbled into the main square. There must be a phone somewhere. I uncrinkled a scrap of paper bearing the name and phone number of Chatra Raj, Venerable Vimalananda's younger brother, but the town was a step ahead of us. Within minutes we were spotted and escorted to a local pharmacy with the notable Buddhists of Tanzen, headed by Venerable Sakyananda, Chatra Raj Sakya and Mr. Bhadracharya were expecting us for the meal. Ah, clear light. We were back in Buddha land again, a bhikkhu to bow to, and the women folk well to the fore, dressed in their Sunday best and bearing engraved metal basins of rice, plates of curries, dal, spices, sweets. It was a proper Buddhist dana, an offering by the congregation who were filling the room above the shop that also comprised the home of Mr. Bajracharya. We were seated on cushions and the food was offered, first to the bhikkhus who responded with chanting, and then, when we had taken what we needed, shared out amongst the twenty or so lay people. It was a time for a revision on who I felt myself to be. The half-crazed tramp in my psyche shuffled aside to make room for the visiting dignitary. Here, sudden as the clearing of a storm, we were honoured guests. After the meal, Chatra Raj, whose name meant Royal Parasol, guided the conversation with his near-perfect English. This hilltop town had a thriving Theravada community, of which the principal pillar was the town's only resident bhikkhu, Venerable Sakyananda. He was in his eighties and was the second most senior Theravadan monk in Nepal. His influence was shared out amongst the Buddhist community, prominent members of which took turns in inviting him to their houses for his meal. Bright beyond his age, walking every day around the precipitous streets of Tanzen must have been a good workout, Bhante asked a few questions about Buddhism in Britain and fixed us with a calm but sharp eye. This was a Theravadan enclave distancing itself both from contemporary Tibetan Buddhism and the archaic Nevari Buddhism, which is a highly modified and unique survivor of Indian Buddhism. Chatra Raj, however, an educated man who lectured in economics and business studies, regarded the Nevari form 
as a collection of outdated rituals that had little to do with the Buddha's teaching. He was an experienced meditator who, when not attending to his teaching duties or his small electrical shop or acting as Venerable Sakyananda's secretary, liked to spend time at a Goenka retreat centre in Nepalganj. Actually, there didn't seem to be much of that kind of time in his life. Like so many busy people, he picked up the duty to attend to us as if it were naturally his. Inquiring after my health, he took the opportunity, the pharmacy we were in doubled as a clinic, to have Mr. Bhadracharya conduct a brief examination and come up with a diagnosis and a remedy, some antibiotics and some enzymes. According to Mr. B, my intestines had not been functioning properly since my first major bout of dysentery. When was that, Bhante? Um, Calcutta, around the New Year. The enzymes were to restore the intestinal flora whose absence meant that I hadn't been digesting food for three months. That cast a new light on my turgid mind states, and a long absent clarity filtered in like dawn. Where had I been? It was like this the last time I was in India. How could I have forgotten? Then the recognition, reason, is the first thing to be sacrificed when the system is lacking energy. So, it was back to basics. How fitting it was that the higher realms should rest on the most modest and earthy foundations, but all things are connected. So, if you come this way, remember your guts, pilgrims. Intestinal flora. Within a day or two, those most humble of all creatures gave me the strength to think straight and to at least walk around the twisting streets of the town without going wobbly. Wishing them well on their long upward climb to higher rebirths, I felt myself coming back into daylight. Chatra Raj settled us in the Sri Mahabodhi Vihara, whose construction Venerable Vimalananda was fundraising for. It had been established in 1984, and although the main structure was more or less complete, only two small rooms and the main hall were usable. I couldn't grasp why it was needed at first, as the town already had four viharas, with only one monk and a nun to share amongst them. Still, it did mean that we had the place and some time to ourselves, but not a lot. Our arrival had sparked off such interest that Chattraraj gently inquired if we would be able to give talks to the Buddhist community, and suggested that Many people would like to take the opportunity to invite us to their homes for dana breakfast too, if that were possible. Enriched by new internal vegetation, I felt only too happy to consent. And feeling energy trickling back, I even felt interested in walking round the town to check out where we were. We did a tour every day, both on account of going to the dana of the day that Chapter Raj had organised, and in order to see the old town, with its views down the hillsides of terraced paddy fields. The terraces were so narrow, 
It was like looking at contours on a map. Further to the north were the high mountains, including one of the highest, Annapurna, the goddess of bounty. But the overcast skies prevented us from seeing them. For now, it was enough to take in the human dimension. The old town inside massive wooden gates coiling around the hilltop, the climbing streets, and the two-storey brick and plaster houses with roofs jutting out into the street from each storey. The upper storeys of the houses protruded so far they nearly met across the street below, as if people wanted to contact each other. Here and there arches actually spanned a narrow lane some four or five metres above the ground level. The older houses among them had tiled roofs with gourds and squashes growing on them and you stepped down off the street to enter them, ducking your head to get under the door lintel, as we did on the many occasions when we were invited in to receive a meal and say hello. The streets were pleasant. Yes, you could stop and look around in a Nepali town without being harassed by man, beast or vehicle. There wasn't the blare of music or the fear of stepping on something or someone unmentionable. Streets that did not have to channel the bedlam of India were places to converse and think about where and how we would proceed from here. How was important. In consciousness, a pilgrimage is more like a living mandala of interconnected images than a historical record. So, to re-establish the sense of pilgrimage meant picking up the thread of the past from the parents, teachers and the Sangha, as it had been handed on through all those Dharma guardians from Mr. Dias and Mr. Mishra to Mechi Ali, Sister Tanisara and Thomas, through all the pestilence and mayhem of the trip so far. Now, we had to sense how it would run on from Chapter Raj through Nepal. Everything's connected. One strand of that thread that seemed to be emerging connected us to a weave of viharas and supporters across Nepal. Chapter Raj had the knowledge and the contacts, a list of addresses of all the Theravadan viharas in Nepal that we were liable to come across along with names of relatives, sympathetic associates and fellow Buddhists. We could be a source of inspiration to them and they to us. The route, speculated over on the map that I now had enough energy to investigate, was the second strand. This time, of course, we were going to be more sensible. No hurry, no particular destinations. Not so many people to avoid, so we could camp out anywhere. Brewing tea with fresh mountain water beside white torrents. Hill country, just the kind that Nick enjoyed. We would be striding along without a care in the world. Hmm. My trail-hardened ear snagged that one. With this kind of enthusiasm in the air, I began to take an anxious interest in the maps and the terrain. Was this going to be another bout of being dragged through the fires of purification, this time struggling up crazy mountains? 
dialogue with my fellow pilgrim seemed to be a strand that needed some strengthening. And then there were those intestinal flora. Guardians of gut knowledge, their vital contribution was to remind me to stay connected to a certain body above, beneath and within all this. Nick Scott I think it must have been Chatra Raj who first explained why the surname of every Buddhist we met in Nepal seemed to be Bajacharya or Sakya. The Bajacharyas and the Sakyas were Nawars, he told us, the people of the Kathmandu Valley, and they were the only two Nawar castes that were still Buddhist. All the other Nawars, those with all the other names, had converted to Hinduism sometime in the past, though they too had once been Buddhist. That was as much as we got from him, that and how traditionally the two castes had all been goldsmiths. Chaturaj's father had been. He showed us the old tools. But the family business had been changed into an electrical shop. That's what had happened for most of them. They'd become the merchant class, and had spread from the Kathmandu Valley throughout Nepal. Light was dawning, so that was why there was a small Theravadan community in each of the towns, and why they all had the same name. And that was why they looked different to the locals. Tansan was an old Gurkha town. The Gurkhas, as well as being Hindu, were supposed to be of Indian stock originally. They still looked vaguely Indian, a montane ecotype that had evolved small bodies, big chests and large thighs to deal with the different habitat. But Chatra Raj, with his round open face and smiling, slightly armoured eyes, didn't look Indian. But he didn't look Tibetan, Chinese or Burmese either. He had something from all the peoples who've moved into the Himalaya. How he looked is what I thought of as Nepalese, but now realised was really Nawa. What Chaturaj didn't tell us, but which he must have known, was where the names Sakya and Bajacharya came from, and why they were the only caste that were still Buddhist. Anthropologists have shown that the Bajacharyas and Sakyas were actually once a monastic order, supported by the other Nawa people. They were exponents of the Buddhist Vajrayana teachings, and they lived in urban monasteries. As they practiced Tantric Buddhism, they had no problem with the idea of sexual relations, which of course eventually led to marriage and the monastic order changing to a priesthood that was inherited at birth. Later their influence on the other castes waned, and many of them had to take up other professions associated with their role as priests, making religious statues, painting tankers, and most importantly, in a society that stored its wealth as jewellery, they became the gold and silversmiths. On our third day in Tanzen, we ate at Chatra Raj's house. We came in the back way, through a room behind the electrical shop, 
and then climbs the narrow stairs while bending forward to get our big bodies under the low ceiling. The living room was above the shop, with windows looking out onto the busy main street at the front of the house. There was a shrine at the far end, with a sublime Buddha Rupa in a locked glass case set into the wall. It was bronze with intricate inlay work in gold, an example of Nawa craftwork. There were also finely made metalwork candlesticks, delicate vases with flowers, and an embellished incense holder into which Ajahn Suchito set burning incense before bowing three times. On the walls to the side of the shrine were photos of venerable old Theravadan monks. We sat fronting all this on the floor, Ajahn Suchito next to the shrine and Chachra Raj across from us, while his wife, one of his daughters and an unmarried sister served us. His mentally handicapped son gambled in and out of the room with the women. He seemed a happy and well-loved lad. They all gathered for the blessing given by Ajahn Suchito, but only Chacha Raj ate with us, the rest retiring downstairs. Afterwards we talked about how busy Chacha Raj found his life. He was a professor at the local university, as well as trying to run the shop, serve as president of the Young Men's Buddhist Association, and so much more. As he talked, I could see the problem. It was all good and worthwhile stuff, but he was a doer. Like me, he got things done. And he hadn't apparently realised yet that if you want to have a more peaceful life, you have to start leaving some things undone, even if they are worthwhile. We climbed the long hill behind the town twice while we were there. The first time just the two of us, and we did it in one go. The crest and the slopes on the far side had been planted with pine trees, a reforestation project that had been ordered by the king when he visited Tanzen some ten years earlier. He'd landed there by helicopter and deplored the bare wasteland that it had become. It was now a beautiful and tranquil park, and we thought how good it would be to get Chacharaj up there and away from his innumerable duties. It was a small thing we might do to repay all his kindness. Climbing with Chacharaj a couple of days later, we chatted most of the way up, in short sentences between deep breaths. We had to rest near the top, more for Chacharaj, who was red in the face, and had sweat on his brow beneath his colourful Nepali cap. Then we climbed again, now using a track with a gentler gradient, and the conversation turned to the less personal, to his spiritual aspirations. The path followed the side of the ridge, and then crossed over into the park, where we stopped to look out over the succession of ridges, to the clouds hiding the higher peaks. There were spaces between the sentences as we took in the wonderful scenery. Eventually, the conversation stopped completely. Ajahn Suchito suggested some formal meditation. We moved across and sat down under some of the pine trees. The enveloping silence was accompanied by the whistle of the wind through the branches.
Achen Suchito. In these towering hills, life felt fresh after the lethargy of the plains. Even the weather. Bright, warm sunshine, then clouds followed by a crackling storm and a day of soft haze. And always fresh mountain air. The human realm had also brightened up. The pebble-eyed stare and numbing non-sequiturs of much of our trip gave way to reasoned conversation on the history and culture of the town and the way that Buddhism was developing here. Chatra Raj was a mine of information. Although it was mostly interested in talk on Dharma and Buddhism in Britain, we pumped him for information to get our bearings on Nepal and its religion. It was the relatively recent introduction of Theravada into the country that concerned him, hardly surprising considering that two of his brothers were bhikkhus, Venerable Vimalananda, whom we knew from Lumbini, and the highly respected Venerable Amritananda, whose recent death had robbed their Sangha of its leading scholar and organiser. Their Theravada Sangha, now consisting of about 100 bhikkhus, was only just beginning its third generation, with Venerable Amritananda himself being a disciple of Mahapragya, the man who had defied government strictures against converting to Buddhism by taking Theravada ordination in 1928. Still alive was Venerable Pragyananda, the first man to walk the streets of Kathmandu in the saffron robe in recent history. Having become a summoner in 1930 and a bhikkhu in 1932, he was the most senior bhikkhu in Nepal and had therefore been made the titular head of the Sangha, the Sangha Raja, a few years ago. But these were still the formative years. In fact, it was only in 1946 that, thanks to the persistence of Amritananda and the support of the Sri Lankan Sangha, bhikkhus were even allowed to stay in Nepal and teach. In other words, Theravada had been in Nepal for about as long as it had in Britain, and until recently under unfavourable circumstances at that. Its acceptance in Nepal would only have come about after the Second World War, when the Nepalese state had wanted to align itself more fully with the international community. Then, as the Buddha, a son of Nepal, and an internationally recognised sage came back into favour, his sangha crept in behind him. So Chattaraj's interest moved forward into the modern world, even as mine moved back into the roots of Buddhism in his country. As with all roots, eventually it goes back to legend. Nevertheless, archaeologists had found traces of the Lichavis, whose traces we had come across at Vaishali, as being apparently present in the fertile and accommodating Kathmandu Valley around the 3rd century of the Common Era. The route they moved in on, up the Gandak, must have been the main gateway for all the subsequent developments of Buddhism to flow from Nalandar and the other academies into the valley until the Turkic invasion slammed the gate shut at the end of the 12th century. After that, the Nawars gradually and progressively adapted, with further waves of Indian immigrants, 
to religious customs that were derived from Hindu culture. Over the centuries, its monastic Sangha metamorphosed into a hereditary neo-Brahminical and non-celibate priesthood of two grades. The Bhadracharyas, who were masters of the Vajrayana tantric practices, and the Sakyas, or Sakya Bhikshus, who were of a lower initiation. Caste, formally instituted at the end of the 14th century, also helped to fix the priesthood as a caste occupation, with the two grades becoming two clans who dwelt in viharas and whose lives were regulated by rites that were shadows of Buddhist ordination and Hindu initiation ceremonies. And the viharas themselves then accrued to the association, or guha, of that extended family. Vajrayana, with its extensive symbolism and its pantheon of Buddhas, Bodhisattvas and deities, easily absorbed images from Hinduism, and the Newari religion evolved into a Buddhist-Hindu hybrid. It reveres the great Hindu gods and tantric deities, the Buddha as an avatar of Vishnu, and Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva as manifestations of the primal Buddha essence, the Adli Buddha. So rituals and mantras and pujas have mixed together in the valley to form a Buddhism that caters to the same urge for blessing and purification as Puranic Hinduism does in India. Things went a different way in the high mountains. Animist gods and demons negotiated by shamans would have been the norm until the end of the 8th century. The old religion known as Bon provided the refuge here as it did in Tibet through magic and sacrifice. Buddhism came to the mountains by means of the tantric masters, principally Guru Padmasambhava. But the connection was two-way and Nepali will point out that 150 years before Guru Padmasambhava, Buddhism had been introduced into Tibet by Brikuti, a princess from the Kathmandu Valley. She was married to King Tsongsengapo and later deified as Green Tara, the most popular goddess of Buddhist Tantra. So in the mountains, the predominant form of Buddhism is Tibetan. The Tibetan diaspora since 1950 has added to the effect. So therefore we have Nevari Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism and Theravada Buddhism and a tradition of Vihara supported by separate associations. This was why there were four, coming on five, Viharas in Tanzen. I was delighting in all these historical threads, but Chattaraj had little to say on the matter. He was moving forwards, whereas I was eager to get a sense for the various elements in the Nepalese tradition. In terms of our pilgrimage, forwards, or the exact route, was a matter of some debate. Obviously we're going to Kathmandu. The valley has always been the heart of the kingdom, the site of Swayambunat, the hilltop shrine to the Adi Buddha, 
and most of the Theravadan Viharas were in various towns in the valley. However, there was a good deal of debate and haggling. The locals thought that going via the road would be more suitable. A walk through the high mountains would be difficult. Nick didn't want roads and was attracted to a mountain walk. I'd dig my heels in at the prospect of another difficult slog and we both complained about having to follow and always accommodate the other one's wishes. Occasionally, Chatra Raj, visiting with a friend or two, would add some non-aligned viewpoints to the debate. And eventually, it was the heavy bait of Chitwan National Park that eventually weighed in favour of the less mountainous southern route through the foothills southeast of Tanzen, into the park and then eastwards before swinging north to the Kathmandu Valley. It'll probably take us ten days, leaving us time to dawdle in the Kathmandu Valley and to visit some pleasant mountain scenery as a kind of holiday with which to round off our trip. By the fifth day, that was decided. Our last day in Tanzen, March 24th, was the grand finale. An arms round through the town, culminating in the Mahachetia Vihara, where we would have a farewell dana, and then head out over the hills. It was stupendous. I had borrowed a larger arms bowl for the occasion, as I expected there'd be more food given than I could fit in my own bowl, but it really made little difference. The bowl was full within minutes, with uncooked rice, dry food, and bags and packets of biscuits. I had to empty it into a shopping basket that an accompanying lad was carrying. It seemed like most of the population of the town was lining the main street up to the Vihara. By the time I had staggered for refuge to the images of the five Dhyani Buddhas in the Vihara's forecourt, five lads were struggling behind me with overloaded shopping baskets. Chatraraj explained that there were few villages on the way and people had wanted to make sure we had enough food for the journey. The congregation who joined us at the Vihara were a little surprised that we would be carrying the food with us, or the dinky little oiled cloth umbrella that the resident nun presented me with. We left them all at the Vihara after the meal and my farewell Dhamma talk. You can only travel light in the mountains. Not that these were even the high mountains yet. Tanzen was only about 1,300 metres up. The valleys were plunging below us, but the real peaks were still hidden in the overcast sky when we set out. Chatraraj and three men accompanied us out of the town, still suggesting that we go by the road, until we bid them farewell and followed the ridge trail going southeast to Chitipani and Arunkola. It was after an hour's walking that the peaks made their appearance, at first hazily through a shower of rain, floating high in the sky, seemingly unconnected to the planet, like gods beyond the human dimension. We scurried on as the drops grew heavier 
Then, as the sky began flinging cloudfuls of hail that ricocheted around our feet, we ducked into a shelter that loomed up in the gloom. It was a simple farmhouse. Surely the owner wouldn't mind. He was in a corner and seemed hardly surprised to see us. I tried some Hindi and some Nepali phrases that Chapter Raj had given me, then noticed his wide, staring eyes. Whatever words were tumbling out of his lips were not in a language that I could understand. He was obviously mentally abnormal. Here, such a person was still looked after as one of the family, maybe even considered to be a holy fool. And if he could have explained, what would his absent relatives have made of his tale of two giants who came with the hail, but some message from above. But he wasn't that interested in us. His unfocused stare reached out of the simple aperture that served as a window and into the sky. And then, almost in response, the Himalayas appeared in splendour, dazzling, bright, as the sky cleared, parading impossibly high above the earth. To look up at them from the ridge top bent the neck back as far as the plummeting valleys bent it down. And in between the two levels we hung, somehow connected to all of it in a way that would snap the mind if you dwelt on it too long. The human level felt so fragile that we should surely ask gods to protect our bodies and minds from being snuffed out by it all. Nick Scott After four months of walking across a flat plain, it's understandable that it took a while to take full account of the vertical dimension when planning our route in Nepal. Despite our new map being covered with contoured brown lines which made it look like the artwork on a banknote and people in Tansen feeling it would be difficult to walk direct from there to Chitwan, I reckon we could do it and it would take us three days at most. At first our route followed one of the east-west ridges on a track made for jeeps, although we only passed one jeep. It was easy going, first on one side of the ridge, with views north to the mountains, now again covered in clouds, and then after we had dropped to a cleft in the ridge, where the lorries toiled up and over on the main road to Pokhara, we made our way along the other side, looking south, and down to the small flat sea of green paddy in the valley bottom. The track weaved in and out following the contour of the ridge. Most of the ridge's side was bare stony scrubland, with the occasional small patch of paddy terraces in any slight notched valleys. We spent the night in a schoolhouse in Chidipani, 
the small hamlet set in another cleft where our track climbed up and over the ridge again. We got permission from the caretaker to lay our sleeping mats between the rows of desks. It seemed a good idea after the storm. From there we headed south on a secondary ridge that led to Hammy. It was after Hammy that we found out why we'd passed only one jeep and why most people were on foot and the goods were being carried by porters in long woven baskets hung across their foreheads. The track changed to a path and then suddenly plummeted down the side of the steep valley and once it had reached the distant bottom climbed the opposite side. We spent most of the day toiling down and then up to find ourselves little more than an arrow's flight from where we'd started. Then we went round the side of the hill to find we had to do it all over again. We gave up at the bottom of the next valley and stayed there, spending the night on the only two square metres of flat ground we could find. We were coming back into the Mahabharat Lek, where the ridges are higher and where the rivers so close to escaping onto the plain have cut lower. That is why this is one of the last parts of Nepal to have been cleared for cultivation. It is all near vertical slopes, and why the village of Badrapur, which we climbed up to on the third day, was the last settlement shown on my map. As we left the village, already starting to go down again, we were called over by a man to a large house with walls of packed red clay between wooden uprights and cross pieces. We joined him on his veranda, looking out over the valley, well below us. Maize cobs hung from the rafters to dry. There were hollowed logs filled with seeds, wooden seats, and a floor of big planks with gaps between them and a sight of the earth beneath. It all had a feeling of plenty, in a simple rustic way. A water buffalo munched in a thatched byre beneath us. A kitchen garden bloomed with young vegetables. Chickens pecked for grubs, and further below, terrace paddy fields spread across the slope. Our host had grey hair, a simple sarong and shirt, and a calm, centred air about him. He had no English, but some youths came by who'd learnt enough at school to ask the usual questions about where we were going, and then, when that was over, to translate some that we had for him. In reply to something I asked, he told us how poor he was, and how poor Nepal was. I have no money to buy anything. All I have is a radio and a watch. He showed us the watch on his wrist, and the radio in pride of place on its own shelf on the wall of the veranda. I tried pointing to the house, the land, the chickens and the water buffalo. Ah, we used to think we had everything, but now we know we are poor. I did try telling him that they had things of much greater value, but when you haven't got the car, the television and the iPod, and only have the fantasy, it's hard to see that. Later, after we'd been offered an excellent and wholesome meal, rice, dal, several vegetable dish, one with mustard, ghee and whey, it's not often that Ajahn Suchito's Little Red Diary lists the dishes, 
brought to us by his wife, eight simple rings in rim of ears, more ornate ones in lobe, we asked the way. The youth said the route was difficult, that it was on small paths and involved a lot of climbing. But can't we follow the river? Both Tamaspur, the place we were heading, and Arankola, the place near to it that we had been told to ask for, were on the river Arung, and according to my maps, the Arung was just below us. They said we could, but that it would be better to follow the path. We did try, but the path seemed to be heading away from where we wanted to go, and I could see the river down below, and even some fields beside it. We were fed up with the paths and all the climbing they involved. Surely following the river would be less work. So we gave in and scrambled down the slope, following the faintest of trails, picking our way down rocky outcrops and hanging onto trees as we passed. It was far further than I'd imagined, and it took a fair part of the afternoon to get down there. And of course, when we got to the bottom, there was no path just a few paddy fields on a small flat piece of land beside the river. We sat down to recover and take stock. The river that thundered by us seemed to comprise as much of rounded boulders and rocks as of churning white water. The rocks were all manner of hues, glistening in the sun from the white spray, orange, grey, crimson and cream sedimentary rocks blue-grey and light-grey conglomerates with bands and speckles or spots, all rolled there by the river from their respective geological outcrops further into the mountains. The valley sides were steep, and where our patch of land ended, the slope was a near sheer wall of scree and rubble running straight down into the river. To follow the river, we'd have to cross it. I cut poles from the scrub beside us and we wobbled across through the raging water. Me first, to see if it was possible, and then Ajahn Suchito. When we got across, we found that the patch of land on the other side was no larger than the first and a few hundred yards further on we had to cross slowly back again. We must have crossed four or five times our feet becoming numb from the cold water, before we stopped, exhausted, to sleep the night on one of the small flat areas of paddy. By then we'd realised why the locals climbed over the last line of hills, rather than follow the river. Next day, after a breakfast of tea and Chinese packet noodles, it was the same we had to cross that river another 23 times. I counted, taking our sandals off each time, leaning on the poles, our numb feet feeling for footholds amongst the rushing white water and the glossy wet boulders. Occasionally, we passed across a bigger piece of flat land with a thatched shelter on it, but all the farmhouses were far higher up amidst patches of terraces within the woodland on the steep hillsides. We saw very few people and found no proper paths.
the small riverside fields were mostly freshly flooded, with young seedlings of wheat, so we walked along their earth walls. At 9am we met a farmer who said we would be at Arancola in four hours, which cheered us up. But when we stopped for our meal at midday, slowly chewing our way through dried rice flakes, salted nuts and dried beans, we could see we still had much, much more than that to go. It got hot too. We must by then have been down at the height of the plain and the increased heat sapped our energy. Although the river crossings were cooling, the glare from the sun reflected in every direction by the water's shattered surface made me squint whichever way I looked. And by the afternoon, I had a throbbing headache. It was five when we finally reached the gorge. The river suddenly turned south to break through the high ridge of hills we'd been walking beneath, and the gorge was full of giant lumps of limestone that had crashed down from the cliffs above. It was dark and cool, but the real relief was finding a proper path, skirting the giant boulders, so that we need not cross the river again. On the far side, we camped on the flat delta of Shingle, where the river fanned out. We sipped our tea by a fire under a filling moon, and then lay down to sleep. Neither of us stayed up to meditate. We were utterly exhausted. Getting out of the mountains had taken five days, not three. It would have been much quicker walking the long way, all the way by road, and a day shorter if we'd kept to the track and not followed the river. It felt a relief to be out of the mountains and back on the plane.